As a long-time foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. Our show features our team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. And they'll help you make the most of your money while cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. You'll get clarity on strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. What follows may not be suitable for all audiences. Listener discretion is advised. The world is full of stories. Stories of mysteries. Of curiosities. Of oddities. Join Kat and Jethro Gilligan-Toth for the strange, the bizarre, the unexpected, as they lift the lid and cautiously peer inside the box of oddities. This is different. You know how we talked about, uh, at one point, pretty much traveling all the time and doing the box of oddities while we're on the road? Well, we are on the road right now. We're... Well, actually, we're in a hotel, right? But but we're doing a, this on the road would be dangerous. Yes, we're we're in uh, Orlando for the week, and we thought this was a good chance to test out whether or not we can uh, produce a, a decent sounding podcast while on the road. So, this may sound a little bit different. I don't know. We're going to try it out and see how it goes. Fingers crossed. It's been a weird stay so far, though. Uh, we got here, and the first thing Cat <laughs> did was order some groceries, uh, Amazon delivery, and uh, they didn't have everything that we were looking for. And I don't know if you guys have done this before, but uh, if you do order on Amazon and they don't have the particular item, they often suggest other things. <laughs> Sometimes those other things aren't exactly what you're looking for. For example. Yeah, in this case, we had requested two cobs of corn because we're going to do burgers and corn. And we got a message and it said, we don't have corn. Is broccoli okay? No. No. No, it's not. It is not. I'm sorry. We don't have whole milk. Will a shoe be all right? (laughs) No, that's not what I want. It's a very different experience, Amazon. Anyway, we're... uh, we're settling in, and uh, we're hoping that uh, this goes well. I get to go. F- I don't know if I'm going first. No, you can go first. Can I go first? Ah, sure. All right. You're sitting on the floor, so I think it's more important that you get yours done with so you could stand up, maybe. That's right. I'm sitting on the floor, and I'm covered in pillows. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, my the blood's draining from my legs Yeah, go as ahead. we speak. Get to it. Okay. Well, there's a small town in Mexico, and it's known as the home of the screaming mummies. Oh. All of these mummies are at least 200 years old, and they're incredibly well-preserved. In fact, they're considered to be some of the best examples of a natural mummification in the world. Oh, wow. And what makes them even more unusual is that all of their faces are twisted and contorted 
as if they're screaming in agony. Oh, no. And you can go see them. They're all available for viewing at the Museo de las Momias, one of the strangest museums in the world. It's the, it's the Museum of Mummies, and it's located in the town of Guanajuato. These mummies all died, and this that's in Mexico. These mummies all died between the 1830s and the 1850s, so they're <laughs> fairly recent. Yeah. And the display at the museum has uh, turned this little town in Mexico into a tourist attraction. So cool. They're known as the Screaming Mummies of Guanajuato. And that's because of the, the way that their faces are distorted. Yes. And there are those who speculate that these mummies may have been buried alive oh. based on their terror-stricken expressions. Can I stop you just for a second? Sure. This happens to us often, and normally I don't bring it up if your topic comes first and I notice that there's a, a common theme between our topics, but I think it's something that we should point out. This happens all the time, that you and I end up picking topics that have some sort of weird connection, and I'm not going to tell you what it is right now, but this is a weird phenomena. Okay. And I don't know what it is or how it is that our brains do this, but we we usually do pick something that has like a common theme and it's weird. But anyway, please continue. Well, at least one of these mummies is has was definitely buried alive. Uh, but there might be more. The museum is home to about, well, actually, exactly 111 mummies. What? The earliest from the uh, 1830s. And they're all in various poses some clutching their arms around their bodies, others with their arms raised partially above them. All of their mouths are open and twisted in horror. Now that I have the idea in my head that they were buried alive, like those positions seem terrible. Like before I would have been like, yeah, okay, well they died and their arms were in that position. But now it's like, well, they were trying to get out or they were, you know, ugh. They were a product of natural mummification. So what's the backstory? Well, between 1826 and 1837, cholera swept the globe. Mm. It was called the Great Cholera Cholera Outbreak. This was a time when people did not understand that cholera was spread through drinking water. Uh, The epidemic hit everywhere from India to England, from Russia to Japan, and uh, it reached Mexico in 1833. Cholera of course, extremely deadly. It could kill within hours of infection. I did not know that. I didn't know that. The person infected quickly became dangerously dehydrated, not only from the diarrhea, but from the vomiting. Mm. So you're you're vomiting and you've got diarrhea shooting out of the other end at the same time. Oh, Lord. How horrific. No wonder their faces looked like that. Right. The skin would turn a bluish gray and then, of course, they'd die. Thousands and thousands fell to cholera in uh, Mexico, and it kept spreading because doctors didn't know what the cause was at the time. It was a horrifying disease. And in 1833, Mexico alone, 15,000 people died of it. Oh, wow. Now, because they didn't know the cause of cholera and people were dying by the thousands in Mexico, the corpses were quickly buried to prevent further spread of the disease. Right. And it wasn't until 1854 that Dr. John Snow proved that cholera was, in fact, waterborne. But even then, people dismissed it as fake news because they didn't believe in germs. (laughs) So the safest thing for them to do at this time, from their perspective, was to just 
huck the bodies in an open grave. No. And they did that quite a bit. More, the more well-to-do families had above-ground crypts. Some were buried individually, but most were thrown into mass graves. And some of them, maybe not completely dead. Hopefully not near a water supply. That is undetermined. Mm. We do know for a fact that one was buried alive. Her name was Ignatia Aguilar. Oh, what a beautiful name. We know a bit about her. She had a rare heart condition, and it's thought that that was related to epilepsy. It would uh, lower her heart rate to the point where you could not detect a pulse. Oh, no. And uh, when she had these uh, fits, she would often pass out, and it would appear as though she was dead. And the last time it happened, apparently, it was more than a day that she had been unconscious, and so the family was convinced she was dead. There was no pulse detected. It was over a day. And so they buried her in a coffin. A number of years later, her body was exhumed from the family crypt. It was completely mummified, and her hands were raised in front of her face. Mm. She had flipped over in the coffin, so she was facing down. Mm -hmm. And even more terrifying, she was biting down on her hand, and her mouth was still filled with dry blood. Oh, jeez. She had scratches all over her face and forehead. There was no question Ignatia had been buried alive. Her body is also on display at the museum. Oh, I don't know about that one. But why were there 111 of them? Why did they exhume so many of them between the 1840s and 1950s? Mm. Well, in 1865, the town wanted to, uh, well, they started taxing people for graves. It was a local tax requiring uh, people to pay if they wanted their uh, use their crypts that were available in the city. And so every 20 years, the relatives and the descendants of the dead one had to pay a fee. If they didn't pay and three years lapsed, then the bodies were exhumed and they were stored in a warehouse oh, near the cemetery. Uh, this was to give the family enough time to collect funds to pay the fees. Now, I disagree. I feel like this is kind of like, um, I don't know, HOA or something like that. <laughs> yeah, Homeowners like, Association. No, no, I've already paid for this. This is redonk. Let's move on and find some other way to tax me because that's a silly tax. <laughs> it's a silly tax. Even though they did give them plenty of chances to pay the fees, about 90% of the disinterred stayed where they, where they were uh, after exhumed because the relatives could not afford what was known, what had become to be known as the grave tax. Now, the, the grave tax was a law right up until 1958. Really? Many of the bodies were exhumed in the name of saving space in the cemetery. And about 2% of those bodies exhumed over those uh, decades were naturally mummified, only 2%. And they stored these bodies in an ossuary somewhere underground. And in the early 1900s, because of their level of preservation and because of the horror-stricken, twisted expressions, it began attracting tourists. One of the very first mummies that was exhumed was a French doctor named Remigio Leroy. He died in 1840, and his body was exhumed uh, in 1865. You know, it seems like he got cheated out of five years. They're supposed to only do it after 20. Interesting. Anyway, uh, he was the first one dug up that uh, because of the grave tax law, and he was completely naturally mummified. People at that time, they marveled at his state of preservation, sure. saying that even his clothes looked as if they had been completely unharmed. The obvious reason for this natural mummification is the dry climate and the low humidity. 
And also, they're at a higher altitude. Now, Leroy and many other mummies were buried in above-ground crypts, and that caused the moisture in their body to uh, quickly evaporate. And of course, once the moisture's gone, the decomposition stops. Mm. Remigio is also on display at the museum, just standing there in his finely tailored suit, screaming, a silent scream. We know some of the bodies were buried before they were dead, but does that explain all of those screaming, contorted faces? Uh, I guess there are several theories about this. Obviously, Ignatia Aguilar was screaming because she'd been buried alive. Another mummy that was exhumed in the 1940s, it appeared as though he had been stabbed just beneath the rib cage, and that would explain his twisted features and expression of agony. And of course, most victims of cholera were in agony when they died, so that's one thing. But in addition to that, there is a scientific explanation, and it's fairly obvious. The way that these mummies were created was very different from the way the Egyptians mummified their dead. These were formed naturally with the bodies drying in the high desert climate. Mm. In that environment, the skin will start to retract on the faces and leave behind the appearance of a scream. And they were already so dehydrated because of the cholera. Right. And so as the skin tightened, it would open their mouths more. And oftentimes they didn't sew their mouths shut then and they would just open naturally Mm. but with the dehydration it was almost like they were freeze-dried uh it would it would shrink it even more and give the impression that they were screaming add to the fact that many of these were cholera victims and were in agony when they died anyway that would explain a lot of the gruesome looks a good portion of the mummies in the museum were miners not like children but people who worked in the local silver sure. mine. <laughs> Dr. Leroy was from who oftentimes f- were miners. That's true, they were minor miners. Mm. Not to be confused with 80s synth band Mr. Mister. Of course, Leroy, Dr. Leroy was from France. Um, they discovered a they also discovered a pregnant woman who had died of cholera and inside her was her still 24 week old fetus. And cholera also claimed the fetus as well. The 24 week fetus has been scientifically verified as the youngest mummy to have ever been found. These bodies all tell the story of Mexico's past through the deaths and the expressions and their poses. And it captures history and freezes it for us to see, regardless of whether the screaming mummies were all experiencing agony or whether it was a peaceful death. They do remind us that death does come for us all one day, (laughs) but most of us won't end up in an exhibit at a small Mexican museum. Sure. (laughs) The the screaming mummies. Wow. Uh, Yeah, that's upsetting. You want to go there, too? I do. Oh, let's do it. Yeah. Now I can stand up. And now, that thing in the middle. A man named Frank Buckles died at the age of 110 back in 2011. He was the last person to die who had served in World War I. He was asked a number of times what the secret was to living a long life. And he said, when you start to die, don't. It's the podcast that famous people listen to, but only admit it to their pastors, therapists, or lawyers. And even then, only after a couple of cocktails. This is The Box of Oddities. You hear Kat and I talk a lot about aura frames, and there's a reason for that. We live in Ecuador, and our family is all over the place. In fact, Kat right now is up visiting her mom, 
And when I say up, I mean Maine. We got her an Aura frame so we could share photos and videos from any device and they'll instantly appear on the frame, which makes it easy because she's getting up there in years. It's easy to set up. It takes about two minutes to set up a frame using the Aura app and it's the perfect gift for Mother's Day. Aura frames are beautiful Wi-Fi connected digital picture frames that allow you to share and display unlimited photos. It's super easy to upload and share photos via the Aura app. And if you're giving an Aura as a gift, you can even personalize the frame with preloaded photos and memories. It is the perfect gift for Mother's Day. Right now, Aura has a great deal for Mother's Day. Listeners can save on the perfect gift by visiting AuraFrames.com to get 30% off free shipping and their best-selling frame. That's A-U-R-A Frames.com. Use code oddities at checkout to save. That's A-U-R-A Frames.com and use code oddities at checkout to save. Terms and conditions apply. Hey there, I'm Dylan Lewis, one of the hosts of Motley Fool Money. Each weekday on Motley Fool Money, we talk through the business news you need to know and the stories moving stocks on Wall Street. On weekends, we dive into the industries shaping tomorrow and host the experts, authors, and executives that understand them. Tune in for insights, a long-term perspective on investing, and of course, stock ideas, plenty of them. To quote a listener, it pays to listen. Check us out and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. The Box of Oddities with Kat and Jethro Gilligan-Toth. Got an email from Lisa. Hey, Kat and JG, I just had what I've decided to call the reverse Box of Oddities effect. (laughs) (laughs) I walked into the living room and saw my dog Raven sleeping. I went over and I patted her and called her my cute patoot. I picked up my phone and started listening to the new episode. And what did I hear Kat call Haggis? Cute patoot. Now, I have never called Raven that. Yet tonight it popped out of my mouth. But since I said it first, I like to think of it as a reverse boo effect. (laughs) Just for the hell of it, I'm sending a picture of Raven. That's always welcome. (laughs) She really is a cute patoot. Mm. Right now, she's living up to the second part of my nickname, Farty McSnorrington. Bye. (laughs) Lisa in Maryland. Bye, Lisa. I love it. It's at this stage of the game that I say... What you got for me? (laughs) Well, today we're going to talk about Dorothea Helen Gray, who was born in California in 1929. Now, according to Murderpedia, 
which should give you an idea where the store is going, by the way. Uh, she had kind of a rough childhood. Her parents were not great. And when she was four, her dad died. And then when she was six, her mother died. So she was sent to an orphanage. And then later on, relatives took her in. No. Gray's first marriage was at the age of 16. In 1945, she married a soldier named Fred McFall, who had just returned from serving in World War II. They had two kids in between 1946 and 1948. She sent one of the kids to live with relatives in Sacramento and then put the other one up for adoption. That's what a loving mother does. Well, we're unclear as to why that happened, uh, but sometimes the most loving thing that you can do is I put your suppose. kid up for adoption. I'm just saying, let's not be judgy. I mean, you can later because she's terrible. But well, whatever. you're reading from Murderpedia, so I, immediately I'm judgy. In 1948, Dorothea and her husband split, and she uh, was charged and pled guilty to two counts of forgery. She was serving four months in jail and three years probation. When she was out of jail, she married again a merchant seaman named Axel Bren Johansson. <laughs> yeah. I don't know what's funnier, his name or the term merchant seaman. <laughs> so that was 1952. And Dorothea created this persona, calling herself Taya Singola Nayard. And she claimed to be Muslim of Egyptian and Israeli descent. It was super weird, considering she is nearly transparent. And... <laughs> Axel had a very violent relationship, and they were married for about 14 years. But Gray would take advantage of Johansson's frequent trips to sea by inviting other men over and gambling away the money that he sent home. In 1960, Dorothea was arrested in a brothel and was sentenced to 90 days in the Sacramento County Jail. And after her release, she was arrested again for vagrancy, which I think is a weird thing to arrest people for, but whatever. Um, and she sentenced. She was sentenced to another 90 days in jail. While in jail, doctors diagnosed her as a pathological liar and having a, quote, unstable personality. Following that, she was getting into more illegal acts that over time escalated. But to the public, she was establishing a reputation as a caregiver. She found work as a nurse's aide caring for disabled people and elderly people in their homes. And after a while, she started managing boarding homes. So at this point, she was kind of cultivating a reputation as being not only an upstanding citizen, but maybe even saint-like. That's right, yes. And in 1966, she married Roberto Puente in Mexico City. After 16 months, the couple separated. Uh, There was, again, a very volatile relationship there. And in 1967, she attempted to serve him with divorce papers, but Puente fled to Mexico, so the divorce wasn't actually finalized for years. But shortly before the end of the marriage, Dorothea Puente took over a three-story, 16-bedroom home in Sacramento. Again, she was establishing herself as someone who would help those in the community. Alcoholics, the homeless, and mentally ill people uh, would come to her boarding home. And she established herself as someone in the Hispanic community who would work with charities and such. 
And this must have been intentional. I'm sure this was all part of her plan. Absolutely. Now, according to the California Court of Appeal records, in 1981, Puente began renting an upstairs apartment at 1426 F Street in downtown Sacramento. In April of 1982, Puente's friend and business partner, Ruth Monroe, rented a space in the apartment that she owned. And shortly after moving in, Monroe died from an overdose of codeine and Tylenol. Mm -hmm. And when she was questioned by the police, Puente said that Monroe had become depressed because of her husband's illness and police ruled the death a suicide. Now, not long after that, police were back at the home after 74-year-old pensioner named Malcolm McKenzie accused Puente of drugging him and then stealing his money. She was actually convicted of three charges of theft in 1982 and sentenced to five years in jail. Wow. Well, she's got a record at this point. She was released in 1985 after serving just three years of her sentence, and 77-year-old retiree named Everson Gilmouth picked her up from the prison. They had been chatting and become quite close pen pals while she was in jail. Everson Gilmouth? Everson Gilmouth. Lovely. I know, right? In November of 85, Puente hired... Ishmael Flores to install some wood paneling in her apartment. Uh, She paid him in cash as well as paying him in a red 1980 Ford pickup, which was in pretty good condition. She later stated that it belonged to her boyfriend who didn't need it anymore. Mm-hmm. Dorothea then asked Flores to do one more thing, build a box about six feet by three feet. Oh, God. To store books and other items. She then asked Flores to help her move the box to a storage depot. So he agreed, and they drove the box toward the storage depot. In the, in the red pickup truck. I'm in the assuming. red pickup truck, of yeah. course, yes. Oh, wow. On the way, though, they were passing by an unofficial household dumping site, and she was like, you know what, let's just stop here and dump the box off here, because it, most of it's just junk anyway. And the guy's like, but didn't you want me to build this box to store these things? And she's like, yeah, but it's pro- it's just garbage. Don't worry about it. Suspicioso. Super suspicioso. Now, some tenants living in her boarding home did resent Dorothea for her stinginess. And they complained that she wouldn't give them all of their mail or all of their money. Others said that she was very kind and she would make them homemade meals. And that was nice. So, I mean, sure. But every month... Puente would collect all of the tenants' mail before they saw it and would distribute the things that she wanted to distribute. And in some cases, if they were getting government money, she would give them some of it. Now, when many of her tenants would get some money, they would go to the nearby bar. And it was a frequent circumstance that her tenants who were at the bar, there would be anonymous tips to the police about them while they were at the bar. And then they'd go to jail and Puentes would then pocket the rest of the tenants' money. It was pretty clever, actually. Now, neighbors did notice something was wrong when they noticed a transient man known only as Chief 
uh, working at the home next door. Puente said that she had adopted him and made him her handyman. Uh, She had Chief dig in the basement and cart soil and rubbish away in a wheelbarrow. The basement floor was then covered with a concrete slab. And then he later took down the garage in the backyard and installed a concrete slab there. Soon afterwards, Chief disappeared, which the neighbors thought was strange. So on November 11th, 1988, police inquired after the disappearance of one of the tenants, Alberto Montoya. He was a developmentally developmentally disabled man with schizophrenia who had been reported missing by his social worker. And while the police were there, they noticed some disturbed soil on the property, and they found a human leg decomposing in the front yard. Oh, no. Of course, Puentes insisted she knew nothing about it, and authorities converged on her home to excavate the yard. So she asked if it would be cool if she went to meet a nephew for coffee in town, and they were like, yeah, that's fine. Don't worry about it. So she left, and investigators found a second body, the body of Leona Carpenter, 78. Now, of course, Dorothea had taken off at this point. Police went to the cafe to find her drinking coffee. She was not drinking coffee. She had skadoodled. And so they were like, I picture, you know, the Keystone Cops music playing because that is silly. Anyway, it's almost as silly as silly taxes. About four days later, Dorothea was found at a California motel. Um, She'd been spending some time with a man that she met at a bar who, by the way, was a pensioner. And he said that she wasn't really interested in talking with him until he told her that he got disability checks. Well, there you go. Meanwhile, police are still digging in Dorothea's yard and seven bodies were uncovered. Seven. Puentes was charged with a total of nine murders, including Ruth Monroe, who we talked about, Mm. Leona Carpenter, whose leg was found, and Bert Montoya. In addition, Puente's boyfriend, Everson Gilmouth, his body was discovered in a makeshift coffin close to the Sacramento River in 1986. How long had it been since she dumped that coffin? It was found in 86. How mm-hmm. long did it take for them to find that? It was about a year. Wow. Poor Everson Gilmouth. I know. First, your name is Everson Gilmouth, and then you get murdered and dumped by a river. And then poor Dorothea Miller, who was 64 years old, last seen alive in October of 87. She was a tenant of Puente's when she vanished. She was an Army veteran, and Puente used Miller's veteran identification card to get medical treatment. Wow. And poor Benjamin Fink, who was 55 when he vanished in 88 while living at Puente's home. He was last seen after Puente told another tenant that she was going to, quote, take Ben upstairs and make him feel better. And poor James Gallup, who was 62, living at Puente's boarding home. He had survived a heart attack and a brain tumor surgery and went to stay at Puente's boarding home. And poor Betty Palmer, who was 78 years old, who was living in the boarding home. She was found buried in the backyard without her head, hands, or feet. Oh, my God. And poor Vera Faye Martin, who was 64 years old. Investigators believe she was buried alive. 
Patterns in the dirt around her body indicated she may have been attempting to claw her way no, out of the shallow grave. No, and this is what you were, you were talking about. Okay. Yes. Yeah, buried alive. That is weird. So Dorothea's trial began in 1992. The prosecutor was John O'Mara. O'Mara called over 130 witnesses and argued to the jury that Puente has used sleeping pills to put her tenants to sleep and then suffocated them in some cases and hired convicts to dig different holes in her yard for their bodies. Wow. Her defense claimed that the tenants had all died either of natural causes or had overdosed themselves. And yes, she was cashing their checks. And yes, she was using their IDs to get medical treatment. Uh, but no, she didn't kill them. They just buried themselves. She just had a house full of dead people who buried themselves. You know, <laughs> during a jailhouse interview with Sacktown Magazine, Dorothy insisted she was not guilty, saying, they don't have all the facts, but God always puts obstacles in people's way. Look at Job, John, Paul, and Moses. Things happen for a reason. So she's comparing herself to Moses. Yeah. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Puente was convicted of three of the murders, although the jury couldn't agree on the other six, even though it's pretty similar circumstances. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. The jury was deadlocked seven to five, and the judge declared a mistrial when the jury said further deliberations uh, would not change their minds. And under the law, Puente received life without the possibility of parole. Eventually, she, she said that she would never admit to these murders, but they might as well have put her to death because it's the same thing being in jail for the rest of your life. Unreal. Puente was featured on numerous crime shows, including Crime Stories, Deadly Women, A Stranger in My Home, World's Most Evil Killers. And in 1991, there was a film called Evil Spirits, which was loosely based on the Puente murders, starring Karen Black. I love Karen Black. I know. That's why I mentioned it. She's one of my favorites. She was in all of those uh, Circle of Fear stories, yeah. right? She was also in Trilogy of Terror. And Trilogy of Terror. All those 70s spooky shows. Mm -hmm. In 1988, Puente began corresponding with Shane Bugby, and the result was Cooking with a Serial Killer, in which he did an interview with her and also shared her recipes. Oh, my God. Cooking with a Serial Killer. Yeah. I kind of like that idea, now, actually. I got most of this information from Wikipedia, from Murderpedia, and Oxygen.com. There was a two-part Oxygen series on Dorothea Puente called Murders at the Boarding House that I'm pretty sure we should watch. Absolutely. So your story is about a, uh, a landlord that killed people. Mm -hmm. And um, our neighbor is a landlord. Mm -hmm. He's never killed anybody. No, uh, not but, that we know of. But, but one of his tenants did. Do you remember this? When I called to ask if I could borrow his wheelbarrow. Oh, yeah. And he said... I can't. I my, the police have it. And I'm like, what are you talking about? He said, "Oh, one of my tenants down at my apartment building killed his roommate and borrowed my wheelbarrow to dispose of the body." And I said, "And they still got it?" And he goes, "Chummy, it's been three months and they ain't giving me my wheelbarrow back." Yeah, that was actually terrible. It was terrible. Yeah. Expensive wheelbarrow. Mm. Yeah. Anyway. Uh, Horrifying, yeah, yet fascinating. Thanks for sharing that. Well, I think this episode went pretty well for our first on the road episode. I think we'll have to listen back to it to to really see to really see. <laughs> but um, the air conditioner's been off uh, mm. for a while, and it's getting kind of warm in here. Quite. So let's wrap this up. I did want to uh, ask you if you've not had a chance to vote yet. 
for the Webby Awards, we've been nominated uh, for a Webby, and it's really up to you guys whether we get the uh, the award or not. We want the award, you guys. You can go to our website, theboxofoddities.com, click on Webby Voting, and if you'd cast your vote for us, we would greatly appreciate it. We're Thanks just, so much. We're just a little show compared to the other people that... We're up against we're up against all these corporate giants. I want the award, you guys. We're just Cat and Jethro. We can't <laughs> compete with iHeartMedia. We need your help. Thanks, guys. We appreciate it, and we look forward to seeing you next time. Until then, keep flying that freak flag and fly it proudly, you beautiful freak. And so, let it be known that the box of oddities belongs to you, and its fate is in your hands. The Box of Oddities commits to the telling of stories. Stories of the strange, the bizarre, the unexpected. TheBoxOfOddities.com On Facebook at Facebook.com slash Box of Oddities Podcast On Twitter at Box of Oddities and Instagram at Box of Oddities Podcast Copyright 2021 All rights reserved My name is Greg Jackson. I'm a historian, professor, and the creator of History That Doesn't Suck, a podcast that provides a complete overview of U.S. history through storytelling, yet keeps the rigor you'd expect in a university class. Starting with 22-year-old George Washington in his first battle, join me for a chronological telling of the United States story. It's unlikely revolution, fractious civil war, tenacious inventors, brave reformers, and more. With more than 100 episodes, you can already binge listen your way through the progressive era. Find History That Doesn't Suck wherever you get your podcasts. If you like this podcast, can we recommend another one? It's called Big Picture Science. You can hear it wherever you get your podcasts, and its name tells part of the story. The big picture questions and the most interesting research in science. Seth and I are the hosts. Seth is a scientist. I am Molly, and I'm a science journalist. And we talk to people smarter than us, and we have fun along the way. The show is called Big Picture Science, and as Seth said, you can hear it wherever you get your podcasts.